It's Alabama in the Civil Rights Era. And I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. And whether you're a person of color... They did everything except physically put their hands on it. There were all kinds of threats. Or a woman... So he got a little irritated and said, you think I'm going to hire you? Or a German immigrant with ties to the Nazi party. And almost all of them, their records were sanitized. It's not easy to find your place in NASA's workforce. We're exploring that issue tonight on the Public Radio Hour in an original documentary, One Giant Leap, How Integration at NASA Helped Mankind Reach the Moon. I'm going to step off the limb now. Brace yourself for landing right after this news update. Controllers, go no go for landing. Retro, go. Ido, go. Guide, go. Control, go. Telcom, go. GNC, go. Ecom, go. Surgeon, go. Capcom, we're go for landing. Altitude 4200. You're go for landing, over. Technically, it was a miracle. The coordination of tens of thousands of tiny moving parts moving in synchronicity to launch America beyond Earth's gravitational grip and to the moon, allowing humans to set foot on another celestial body for the first time. That coordination took teamwork and collaboration, and a disparate set of skills from people of all walks of life. And if you think about it, that is the most amazing thing about the Apollo 11 mission. How do that many people work together, especially when the world around them is in turmoil? From space, we're all one blue dot. But on Earth, in America, women and minorities were, and still are sometimes, treated as inferior and underappreciated. It was one giant leap to change the social mindset from something it had always been to create an environment where people can work together and accomplish amazing things. This is a special presentation of the Public Radio Hour, One Giant Leap, How the Integration of NASA Helped Mankind Reach the Moon. I'm Brett Tannehill. This massive social change did not come easy as it mashed together new ideas and new people not used to sharing space. It was unavoidable, though, as the Civil Rights Act required NASA and other governmental agencies to find ways to integrate minorities into their workforce to maintain federal funding. And that was a tough sell, especially in the segregated South. NASA was also struggling to integrate women into its workforce. And in quiet, conservative Huntsville, Alabama, residents were also faced with the challenge of integrating the families of Werner von Braun's rocket team, a community of Germans, some of whom had ties to the Nazi party and the atrocities associated with it. When von Braun's team arrived in America, landing first in the flat, hot heat of Texas, it was viewed with some suspicion. But when the Germans were later sent to live in the rolling green hills of Huntsville, Von Brown's daughter Margaret says those outcast families finally felt like they'd found a home. Well, after World War II, I think, uh, you know, the idea of this, this team of rocket scientists coming to America, of course, had some controversy around it um, in Texas and then certainly in Alabama. But I think after the war, you know, everybody wanted to move on and wanted to move forward and look forward. And, and I think Alabama really provided that opportunity. You know, it's, it's kind of amazing to think about a town like Alabama, which was famous for, for cotton and watercress, that then became Rocket City, and how it really embraced 
provided an opportunity for um, that. My, my father often said, luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. And I think that's, that's sort of the embodiment of what ha- happened in Huntsville. It provided an opportunity for, for great things to happen. But it's, it's kind of a, a miracle story, I think, that they came here and they were able to work together and do such great things together. And Huntsville really provided an incredible opportunity. It was a difficult time in Alabama during the civil rights era. It brought out the worst in some of the cities. Um, What do you remember about the civil rights era in Alabama as a resident in Huntsville? It was a little bit different here. I'm just now learning about the the role that Marshall played in accelerating integration in northern Alabama, which is is a wonderful legacy. I didn't really realize it at the time, but... And your father played a big role in that. What are some of the things that you have learned now that you didn't know previously about well, one your of the father's stories, role in that? Yeah, one of the stories I heard was when when they were developing the center at Marshall, that there were there was a blueprint and he was trying to figure out space, you know, for production and for offices and meeting rooms and all the usual stuff. And there was a blueprint that showed six bathrooms, one for... Uh, enlist, enlisted men, enlisted women, civilian men, civilian women, black men, black women. And apparently he took out a magic marker and just said, there will be one men's room and one women's room, and we're going to take the other four bathrooms over and make them into other spaces. So th- that was a story that I've heard. Um, and But I think there were just a lot of efforts that that people said, you know, we need the diversity, we need the workforce development here in Huntsville, and we need to get on board with what the, what's happening in the rest of the country, and it helped accelerate that movement. I think we're just now beginning to understand the history of some of the people who were underrepresented in that workforce and how they were still, you know, literally the hidden figures, and we're now only beginning to tell their stories, which I personally wish I had known those stories at the time, because I think it would have influenced that next generation in a much more profound way. I didn't know, for example, any women that worked at the arsenal that weren't clerical. Years ago, I got to meet Dr. Joyce Neighbors, and um, I saw her again the other night, and I just, I was so amazed at her story. She did so many things, coming from rural Alabama, working her way up in a very technical capacity at Marshall. But the story is that she was always asked just to sign her sign her documents, J neighbors, with just the initial J, not Joyce, so that people wouldn't know there was a woman working there. And she rallied. I mean, she did her job. She was so incredibly competent and always persevered with grace. But as, as I think she says, uh, I didn't step on other people's toes, but I also made sure nobody stepped on mine. And when I got to know her and hear some of her stories, I thought, why didn't I know any women like this growing up? Because I really didn't. I mean, there weren't that many, but there were some. And I didn't know them. And uh, I, I wish I had, because I think, I think that next generation, especially of women scientists, would have benefited tremendously. And so I, I think the fact that these stories are, are coming out now um, demonstrate that there was an effort to diversify the workforce. But but. Parts of that that uh, male-dominated society wasn't sort of ready to admit it either. So good for them that they persevered. And you touched on this earlier um, in terms of some of the struggles that the German community may have had as it integrated and became part of the American community. Still today, there is some discomfort with the relationship that uh, your father and some others had with the Nazi party. Did that affect your life in Huntsville in any way? Is that something that ever came up? 
You know, my parents, like most um, post-World War II families, really didn't talk about the war. My husband's father was an American soldier. His family didn't talk about the war either. So I think that was a pretty common experience in the German community. They did not talk to their kids about the war. Uh, but I don't think that was unique to them. I, th I think it was true of a lot of American families, Russian families, um, probably Japanese families. So um, I didn't feel that affected by it at the time. I mean, I knew we were different because we were German and we ate different food and, and we didn't eat as good a food as the Southern food, I, I later came to learn. Um, but I didn't feel that affected by it at the time. So it didn't come up? People didn't you know, mention it to you at school or it didn't come up? I don't in, remember that ever being an issue when I was a child here. How did members of the German community reconcile that, that relationship? I think their view of living in America was they were incredibly happy to be in America. They were incredibly happy to become American citizens. And they saw this as the next great chapter of opportunity in their lives. I mean, I think that was, I don't know if that's a reconciliation or just a moving on, but, um, you know, they were, they were, they, most of the parents, you know, our parents' generation became American citizens after we did because we were born as American citizens. So, so uh, my father said, always said, you know, you, you were, you and your sister were American citizens before mom and I were. And, but that was a, that was an incredibly proud day for all of them. And, the, you know, they were incredibly happy to be living in America with, with the opportunities that this country provided and still provides. That was Dr. Margaret Von Braun, daughter of rocket pioneer Werner Von Braun. She touched on many of the topics we'll discuss in the rest of the show. For a little more perspective on the German community and Werner Von Braun's tie to the Nazi party, we talked with NASA chief historian Bill Barry and Marshall Space Flight Center historian Brian Odom, who also helped us gather interviews for this documentary. Von Braun's Nazi ties are still a point of contention today as we try to understand his complicated legacy. He spent his life pursuing a dream of building rockets to explore space, and that path, all intentions aside, led to thousands of deaths as he was co-opted into the Nazi party and saw his V-2 rocket weaponized and used with deadly consequences. Here's Brian Odom and Bill Barry. You know, I think about some of the decisions I made when I was in my 20s and 30s, um, and I'm glad the consequences weren't anywhere near as high as they were for him. Um, but um, I think we have to sort of sort of look at that in context and say, you know, well, well you know, what would what would we have done in a similar situation? Um, uh, ultimately, you know, his goal was clearly he was focused on um, you know, on exploring space. Um, and uh, he made some choices uh, early on that were uh, were ones that that we might now, in retrospect, knowing how things turned out, say, well, that wasn't very very nice, or wasn't very smart, or you know, he made a deal with the devil on on this thing. Was it really worth it? Could he have even reasonably known that that was that was how things were going to turn out? Now, once he's in the middle of it, and um, and and it becomes clear that uh, you've got Jewish and, and other undesirables working in slave labor camps to build V2 rockets for him. Um, you do have to wonder about, about his response to that, I suppose. And, and uh, uh, I, I would like to think that I might have made a braver and wiser choice than he did. I'm not sure what that would have been. But uh, it's, it, was, it was a difficult position to look at. Ultimately, when he comes to the United States, he and, and many of the others who were uh, you know, tied to the Nazi regime and, and high technology areas, the United States brought a number of them over. And uh, almost all of them, their records were sanitized 
by other government agencies, right. not by NASA. And then he winds up working for the, de- the Department of the Army here in Huntsville eventually. Um, and then eventually, as what's now the Marshall Space Flight Center becomes part of NASA, um, he gets pulled into that. And, and that background is largely not known even to people in the highest levels of NASA. But you kind of touched on it there. The thing that I have trouble wrapping my head around is that was his dream, is to find an avenue to explore space and to and to do these things. And and like you said, the decisions you make along the way, it's easy to look back and have an evaluation. But at the time, that's what is interesting to me is, is that pursuit of the dream at, at what cost? You know, there's always the, this idea of this Faustian bargain, right? This bargain for this is the dream. The dream is space. Uh, what do I have to do to achieve that? And then within that, there's the, you know, within Germany at the time in Nazi Germany, there's this competition that he's uh, not caught in the middle of. He's not uh, clueless about this, but between the army uh, you know, and, and, and where he would like to be, uh, you know. Right. And so, you know, there's a lot of careerism associated with this. I think uh, Mike Neufeld uh, really is the best person to look at this because he really gets into the details. What are the details? What are the facts of this? What do we know? Uh, you know, and, and to Bill's point, you know, there are, there are points along the way when it becomes obvious where, uh, you know, you know what you know, and there's no way you don't know that. Uh, and, you know, especially when mm-hmm. we talk about production, when we're still talking about testing of V2s, I mean, there's still, you know, the V2 itself, you know, is a, is a weapon of war, right? Uh, there are, you know, thousands of people are dying in, in you know, London and in Belgium and France and different places in Europe. Uh, so, but this is a weapon of war. And I think, in the, you know, from the American military's perspective, they understood that as part of it, right? So, there's no, there's, you know, there's no Faustian bargain there. But yes, it's once you begin to see, once you get to, to where these things go into production, the V2 facilities, and then the development of the facility itself, which was one of the, uh, you know, one of the largest losses of life, uh, and to dig, basically dig a production facility in the side of a mountain. Uh, there, you know, thousands of people die, concentration camp labor there. Who knows this? When does he know this? And von Braun actually uh, in his later life, he kind of reflects on these things and, you know, and he talks about these. He, he wishes, you know, he wishes he'd done something at that time. But, you know, uh, how do you, you know, how do you, do you take someone at their word then when that's behind them? The best thing as historians, what we do is we just look at this and we try to develop the context of, of these lives and of these events as much as we can to paint a clearer picture of what happened. But, you know, you still look at the idea of, uh, and the judgment is for the population to determine. I mean, we talk, you know, this is not the only topic we talk about this. In America, we talk about the history of slavery, you know, built, you know, an economy built on the backs of enslaved labor, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and we have the Confederate memorials, you know, and so there's, there's all these different decisions. You know, Thomas Jefferson, the author of the Declaration of Independence, you know, owns hundreds of slaves throughout his life. As historians, we look at those and we develop a deep context and paint a clear picture of what their lives were like uh, and, and somehow reserve judgment uh, of that. But Von Brown is definitely somebody who's characterized by this. When people think of his name now, that's the association with the V2 and with the concentration camp labor. It's still something that people have to, have to you know, seriously consider. So, I'm sorry, go ahead, Bill. One of, the, one of the other things I think is really interesting about Von, Von Brown is you look at you know, what happened there. But then, then what happens in the 1960s when he's here in Huntsville? Von Braun's role in, um, in helping to desegregate um, Huntsville so that they could bring uh, African-American uh, engineers and uh, work talent here to work. Uh, because many, they tried to recruit 
people that come work here, and many would say, I'm not going to Huntsville. I can't buy a house. I can't go out to eat in a restaurant, um, you know, and all these other things that were, that were lifestyle issues. And quietly, largely behind the scenes, but now we now know, um, you know, Von Braun was out there pushing the government of Alabama, particularly the, the you know, the, the governor himself, say, you know, if we don't find a way to make this work and, and, and allow you know, African-Americans to work here at this federal facility, um, you know, the U.S. government is going to pull this facility out of here and move it someplace else. And that was a huge amount of leverage uh, to help um, encourage um, change here in, in the Huntsville area. But, yeah. but isn't that also connected, connects back to that dream that he still is pursuing in terms of yeah, there's there's a level of opportunism associated <laughs> exactly. with that as well, uh, you know, because you know, ultimately, why do you decide that, you know, and none of us are free from this. Why do we make the decisions that we make? Well, it's, sometimes it's obvious and sometimes there's, it's complex. Uh, why it does, is very complex. Why it? does Von yeah. Brown uh, see that equal employment is in his in his best interest? Uh, is it because he really has an, a passion for civil rights or is it because he'd like to see the funding for the space program continue and this is a this is a weak point. And again, this is you know, we can't get inside of his mind. We can't see what he you know. The one thing I will tell you is uh, you know he he would comment from time to time in in a personal way on what was going on with civil rights. That was very interesting. In fact, uh, you mentioned uh, George Wallace. You know he was uh, never a fan of George Wallace. And and, and von Brown's daughter, Margaret von Brown. Uh, you know, she is somebody who grows and in, in, in as a young woman actually gets involved in the civil rights movement herself. But Von Brown himself, you know, once commented that the state of Alabama had drawn a Berlin Wall around the ballot box. Well, there were a lot of people in Alabama who were very angry at that comment. And, and this goes back to his history, right? I mean, if he's someone who's done what he's done in the past, you know, how dare he say something about Alabama politics, you know. So it's, it's a lot of unique moments like that in this whole process. But, you know, Von Brown, from what we know, Von Brown was someone who did take actual steps in a positive way for civil rights in the state of Alabama, and you really can't deny that. Why he did it is left for other people to debate. You're listening to One Giant Leap, How Integration at NASA Helped Mankind Reach the Moon on this special edition of the Public Radio Hour. You can also find a podcast at WLRH.org. Look under Programs for the Public Radio Hour, where you can also find long-form interviews with all the voices we'll hear in this program. Finding a home for the German rocket team so it could focus on its rocketry was a first step, taken at a time when minorities and women were struggling to take their own steps forward in the workplace and in society. You heard Margaret Von Braun mention the name Joyce Neighbors, one of the earliest female engineers at Marshall Space Flight Center. Neighbors says she came from nothing, no electricity as she grew up as a child, no encouragement to get an education. But she was eager to learn, so she fought for it, worked her way through school as one of the few women in her field, and all the challenges that came with that. Neighbors became heavily involved in NASA's Explorer program and then Apollo, always battling to move ahead and stay on the team. She's retired now, but invited Brian Odom and myself to hear her story. When we went to the moon, we had thousands and thousands of people working on that project. And we didn't have support for that after we landed. Uh, The money was cut back. Uh, I think there were 
uh, several thousand engineers that worked at Marshall. So there was a big layoff. But my boss told me when they were cutting back that my husband had a good job and they were going to take my job. And I said, Mr. Uh, Mandel, I don't accept that. And he said, well, there's not anything you can do about it. I said, you may be surprised. And he was, and I was too. I was very surprised. The fact was, and I learned this later, I found in, in while I was cleaning up some correspondence to the head of NASA and the subheads all the way down to the centers that there was uh, mandatory uh, rules being in, placed that they were not treating women well. And I, di I did not know that at the time because I figured I can find enough aggravation to keep them busy just on my own. But anyway, uh, that was, I think, the, the thing that turned it around. I've heard that scenario play out several times where women were approached during rifts, you know, reduction in forces, where they said, well, your husband has a job. You know, so, so why would you need a job? And so that's, that's such a common... Well, I told my boss, I'll divorce him and just live with him if that's a problem. I, I'm serious. I, I, he wasn't going to have my job. I had 16 years. I wasn't going to start over. And uh, I was just going to be a troublemaker if that's the way it was. But as it turned out, I never told anybody, if anybody approached me wanting to talk about it, I would not talk about it because I was keeping my end of the bargain. I was staying on the team, and my team was the number one priority to me. Now, I'm talking about it because I do think it's important to uh, illuminate how far we have come and how far NASA has come. Women probably still have to be a little bit better than their competitors or their co-workers uh, until they get known. When I got known, I never even, it never even crossed my, my mind that I was talking to some sexist. When I went to GPB, I did interview a guy. He was uh, a manager on a on a space lab project, and he was not very diplomatic, and I think he was removed uh, because of that. He's he's dead now, and uh, uh, he came to me to interview me for my deputy. So he come in, he had a shirt that had Western, had on a Western shirt, great big old belt buckle. He's big, tall fellow. Um, standing up as tall as he could be. I told him, come over and sit down at the table. And uh, he said, well, before I sit down, I just need you to know that I don't have never worked for a woman before. And I said, well, I hadn't either, so I really couldn't help you. <laughs> Joyce Neighbors worked her way up in the NASA hierarchy, but was continuously reminded that even if you're the boss, respect was hard to come by in the early days of America's space program. 
fighting for your spot in a white, male-dominated workplace was hard enough. So imagine if you were trying to get your foot in the door as a woman who was also an African-American in the Jim Crow South. Jeanette Sism faced discrimination due to her gender from her mostly male African-American classmates and teachers as she worked her way through school. It was an issue of gender and race as she sought her first job at Marshall Space Flight Center. Despite several rejections, she kept trying at the urging of an influential and white friend of her family. But he said, you fill out the application, I bring it to you, and I take it out to personnel. You know, see if, see what happens. Well, I did. And they responded and said I was highly qualified, but they didn't have any vacancies. Well, I applied again, same thing. Applied three times, same answer. I didn't understand that. How can you be qualified and they keep not having a vacancy for you? And I knew they were looking for co-ops. So... My mother was a domestic. She worked for some very influential people over in Gunnersville, like Art Sanderson's wife, my mother, and the Lusts, they had a family of lawyers and so forth. And when my mother uh, told them, you know, I was having trouble getting on, that was after I graduated. I kept applying it after I graduated. Yeah, especially after I decided I didn't want to teach. My mother talked to Art's mother, and she said, tell her to go over and talk to Art because I know that they are looking for minorities. And uh, so I, I went over there and I talked to Art. Art set me up some interviews. First interview didn't go too well because he didn't want to talk about anything but my music, I see you take music, do you sing, can you sing? And after a few questions like that, I just said, I don't understand, that's not what I'm interviewing for. Never ask me anything about my, you know, my major or my minor. So he got a little irritated and said, you think I'm gonna hire you? Got up and left. So I got up and went to Art and told him what happened. So he sent me up another interview with Bob Smith, Robert Smith, who was in, uh, a meteorologist and uh, a great man, best boss you could probably ever have. He hired me, and I worked with him all during the time I was there at Marshall. SISM helped NASA study sunspots and worked with the Apollo program, but eventually wanted to do something more and started working with Marshall's Office of Equal Employment Opportunity. She took up the fight for fair treatment of her African-American co-workers, male and female, and sometimes did her job too well. Because of some things that I'd seen, some things that I'd experienced, I wanted to work in that area to try to change things a little bit if I could. Because I really did try to help people. I, tried, I felt like I represented the employees you know, that I needed to make management understand what they were experiencing. Because the word got around that I did try to help the employees. I got a lot of customers, and nobody was happy about that. My office wasn't happy. They said, that's not your job. 
this is your job, this is what you get evaluated on, you don't get evaluated on that. No evaluation whatsoever on the work you do in that area. I felt like they were trying to pull me out of it because I did try to help the employees rather than telling them go back to the office and, and be quiet. I would go to management, I would approach management and a lot of the councils wouldn't. They just wouldn't do it. In fact, uh, Norm ever told me once, he said, that you're going to get in trouble. <laughs> I said, no, I'm not going to get in trouble because I'm doing what they asked me to do. Uh, but then I was approached by, uh, by someone from headquarters in the EEO who said that uh, they were concerned about my job because NASA management, Marshall management was real unhappy with me with all the complaints I was handling. I said, I don't solicit the complaints. They come to me. Am I supposed to turn them away? Yeah. Let some of the other counselors handle them. Uh, the other counselors didn't want it that probably. They, they, I, I, I don't think they were, they, they had the commitment that for some reason I had. I don't know why I had it. I think it was just in, innate in me. Do you remember Watson Barnum? He had a degree from A&M. I think it was English. And he was working in the mail room. And they, they would uh, bring non-minority people in under him. And he would train them. And they would work up and pass him. He stayed right there in the mail room. So he came to me and uh, wanted to file a complaint. And I helped him. He won his complaint. And I think he, he got promoted at least three grades. That was an improvement. Small but personal victories in a clash of cultures between the future and the past. Today, I have stood where once Jefferson Davis stood and took an oath to my people. It is very appropriate that from this cradle of the Confederacy, this very heart of the great Anglo-Saxon Southland, that today we sound the drum for freedom, as have our generation of forebears before us done time and again down through history. Let us rise to the call of freedom-loving blood that is in us and send our answer to the tyranny that clanks its chains upon the South. In the name of the greatest people, that have ever trod this earth, I draw the line in the dust and toss the gauntlet before the feet of tyranny, and I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. Famous words from Alabama Governor George Wallace. It's the 1960s, and many parts of the South are still rebelling against growing support for the civil rights movement, which had triggered the integration of NASA's workforce in order to maintain NASA's access to federal funding. Werner von Braun recognized the tie between integration and funding and knew it could deal a potentially fatal blow to his dream of exploring space. He responded by challenging segregationist politics and with a strong message that was mandatory viewing for all his Marshall Space Flight Center employees. The Marshall Space Flight Center has achieved an enviable record today in successfully meeting the problems 
which have confronted us in our bid to place a man on the moon in this decade. This record has been the result of teamwork and our willingness to be satisfied with nothing less than a job well done. While there are many challenges still before us in our efforts to achieve what has become a national objective, we are confronted today with a challenge which has all the urgency and importance of our space exploration program. The Equal Employment Opportunity Program has my complete support. But to achieve an effective program at Marshall, your support is also needed. It is important that each of you, as a federal employee, become aware of your responsibility in carrying out this program. Your orientation and training today is directed towards that end. If we at Marshall are to have an affirmative program, one that will place the center above reproach, your assistance, your affirmative attitudes, and your dedication to a principle that is based upon what is right, what is just, and what is fair will be needed. As you accept this responsibility, let me assure you that you will have the complete backing of the center, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, and the United States government. Learn all you can about this program and apply it to your own work situation. In doing so, you will become a part of what our president has termed a moral cause, moral in its best implications. You will also be doing your part in contributing to the achievement of another job well done by Marshall Space Flight Center and by NASA. If we are to extend man's boundary to the outer reaches of the universe, it is imperative that we also resolve man's relationship with man on this earth. Not only was the lingering shadow of segregation a threat to funding for the Apollo program, but it was also a major hurdle in recruitment. When the outside world thought of Alabama, it didn't think of rockets to the moon. It thought of the sometimes brutal oppression of segregation and what talented person of color would want to subject themselves and their family to that. That's how Dr. Ravendra Lal says he and his family thought about Alabama from his home country of India. Lal is a metallurgical scientist, and among the many NASA programs he worked on, he helped the Apollo team understand the special paints needed for the Saturn rocket so it could withstand the intense radiation of space. As Lal made his way to Huntsville, he found a world where he didn't know how to fit in. One thing was there, surprisingly, if you look at the maps of that time, Huntsville was not listed. There was no showing in the Alabama state map. Decatur was there. So when I was coming, I was looking at the map, where I'm going. So I looked at the map of Alabama and I couldn't find. And my father-in-law, who was also a magistrate, in state of Jep Rajasthan, Jaipur, he also looked around. He said, "Why in the world you are going to Huntsville when <laughs> this is not even shown in the map?" <laughs> so I said, "It is very important. It is NASA's headquarters for the space program." So anyway, we came here, and uh, it was sort of a little bit difficult in a way that I was told by different people that don't travel to south part of Alabama. It can be a problem. And one thing I may say, I don't know whether it's good to have it on the record, 
when I came to get my driver's license, I went to the courthouse. The courthouse has two benches. It was in the old building on the side of this main courthouse. And the bench, one says black, one says white. And I didn't know which, where should I sit. I knew that I'm not black and I'm not white. So I kept on standing, including my wife. Both were there for driver's license. So I stood there, but when I got my license, at that time they used to give right on the license white, race white. So when I saw W written and I said, I'm okay, so I can now sit on the white bench. <laughs> but uh, that, uh, nowadays they write, uh, I think they write uh, Indian or something, I or, but at that time, they didn't know how to classify. <laughs> Building mankind's most technologically advanced hardware needed the world's brightest minds, so the recruitment of specialized workers, like Law, was critical. But despite Von Braun's vocal support for integration, non-whites still had a hard time figuring out how to fit in, as the idea of segregation was so deeply entrenched. To provide more context, here's Robert Stone, writer, researcher, and producer of PBS's Chasing the Moon documentary series, and once again, Marshall Space Flight Center historian Brian Odom. Once, uh, you know, the Kennedy commits uh, on some level to equal employment opportunity in 1961, uh, that kind of sets her trajectory. I mean, desegregation had begun well before that, 1954, Brown versus Board of Education, but it's in 1961 where this gets tied up with the economics. Uh, Kennedy says, you know, if you're if federal contractors, people holding contractors contracts with the government, if you're going to participate in this, you have to follow affirmative action and equal employment. Well, that sets in in you know sets in motion this long string. In 1963, Kennedy basically comes back to that same act and doubles down on it. Well, NASA as a federal entity holding you know contracts worth an estimated you know almost five percent of the federal budget at a time you know if and if you consider the discretionary part of that this is a huge amount of money uh, so if if NASA is going to be able to effectively implement its program it has to deal with these things and that's what it begins to do and it places like Marshall uh, so in 1963 uh, the administrator sends around he says look you know, uh, every time I go into a meeting with uh, pre the president, I'm getting killed about this. Uh, demonstrate to me that you're doing what you're supposed to do. Do the analysis, do the work, and lay this out for me in a way that we can we can demonstrate an effective progress. And that's basically what begins. And at Marshall, uh, Marshall writes, you know, in in its administrative report on this issue, it says it is the decades and decades of segregation that has set us back in this. Resources have been deprived in the black community and their own education. Uh, the excuse becomes they're not ready for these jobs. The president says, we'll get them ready. And that's, and that's basically what begins to happen here. Marshall in 1963, really, even before the Civil Rights Act, really begins an effective uh, campaign. And it, and it produces uh, to different results, but they begin a campaign to locate African-Americans who can work in this program. Locally, it's at Alabama A&M University, but there are cooperative programs with places like Tuskegee. There are places uh, in you know Southern University in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, to go where the engineers are, find them, convince them to come here. One of the things they do is they hire somebody to recruit and to set up these programs, and it was Charles Smoot. 
Charles Smoot is someone who is tasked as what was known as the as being the Negro recruiter. And Charles would travel the country looking for this talent. Well, he goes to Arkansas at one point in 1964 and finds a fellow by the name of E.C. Smith. And he's trying to convince E.C. Smith to leave Arkansas to come deeper into the South. <laughs> and, uh, you know, how he does that is, is, is left to E.C., right? But E.C. says, you know, that Charles told him, well, if you think about Alabama, you think about Birmingham. Huntsville is different. Huntsville's not like Birmingham. And EC's first question was, how different is it? You know, <laughs> so I think, you know, that, that kind of speaks to this hesitation of this image problem. When people thought about Alabama in 1963, they didn't think about the space program. They thought about Birmingham. They thought about, you know, fire hoses, you know, police dogs, Bull Connor. And that was the image nationally. It was hard to get anybody to move to Alabama, let alone African-American engineers who saw opportunities, greater opportunities in places like Southern California. They could move to L.A. and make more money. Why would you move to Alabama and make less money? And so that's, that's really the, the, the context for this. But I think this whole issue, you know, uh, uh, the civil rights intersection with the space program is something that it, it, doesn't, it doesn't diminish from the Apollo program. It, it, you know, it increases its, its, its appeal because if there's something out there, a program out there that's powerful enough to send these ripples into communities like this, uh, you know, technology itself, how, how great this technology was going to be. And, you know, uh, if, it could, if we can land a man on the moon, what else can we do? And people, I think, thought about it that way. Maybe we can solve racial issues with, in a, in a, through technology programs. So I think that was a, that was a unique part of that. Yeah, there's a great story of uh, 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 Jim Webb, who was the head of NASA uh, in the 1960s, coming down to Huntsville and talking to Von Braun said, you got to hire more black engineers. And Von Braun's going, well, I can't get these guys to like if you're a, if you're a, a, a black rocket engineer uh, and you've got advanced degree, do you really want to come to Alabama? You know, when there are these opportun- other opportunities around. So they had a real recruitment problem based on exactly what you said the sort of bad reputation that, that the South had at that time. Um, so that was, a, that was a sticking point. I think another interesting story related to this is um, uh, what happened in Houston where um, the, the Manned Spacecraft Center was uh, uh, centered in Houston, um, decided to be put there because of the efforts of um, Congressman Albert Thomas, who was uh, a very powerful congressman. I think it was on the Appropriations Committee. Anyway, it had something to do with the... Um, appropriating money for NASA. And he said, I, if there's going to be a new space center, I want it in my district, which was south of Houston. And it went property that was owned by Rice University, which was segregated, a segregated university at that time. And um, uh, the, what, if the, the, the deal was, if you want this federal uh, uh, institution down here, the Manscraft Spacecraft Center, you're going to have to desegregate your university because we can't deal with you. And that's that's exactly what happened. The board voted, and and uh, so that was a, that was a, an example of um, the space program as a uh, a representative of the federal government having to follow federal guidelines and federal rules, including the Civil Rights Act, having a ripple effect across the South, where many of the facilities, NASA facilities, were, um, and having a positive impact on civil rights. And it's interesting, you mentioned, you know, Jim Webb, the administrator, when he comes to town here in Huntsville, and he says, you know, if, if you don't get yourself in line, if you don't improve your image problem, is how he addressed it, you know, the insinuation was, this doesn't have to be here. It could be in anywhere, right. because your development work is over. Now we're talking about the management of contracts. If I can't do that in Huntsville, 
I can do it in Seattle. I can do it somewhere else. And I think the interesting point about that is that the black leadership of the civil rights movement understood that. They understood that leverage. Uh, when Webb comes and he talks and he says, get, get yourself in order, uh, Sonny Herford, Dr. Sonny Herford, who's one of the leaders here, you know, he sends Webb a telegram and he says, thank you for your words. We appreciate it. We, 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 the black community of Huntsville, are so grateful for the work the space program is doing. You know, don't forget us as you move forward, you know, because we love the space. We love space as well. We mm -hmm. love this is a great national thing, but don't forget about us. And so he was basically, you know, doubling down on that idea of we get it. Mm -hmm. We know what's going to happen. And if the we will let you know if the image is not good. Let's talk about uh, Werner Von Braun uh, for, for a moment. Uh, obviously, a strong proponent of integration in Alabama, clashing with politicians at, at times, sort of, you know, putting exposing himself for criticism uh, in the press. Um, but both of you separately have, have said at times uh, that he was also an opportunist. He was, you know, uh, part of the Nazi party, though not necessarily someone who believed uh, in, in that ideology. Do you think that he truly believed in equality and civil rights? I believe he did to some level. Uh, he was a pragmatist. You know, you can say opportunist, but you can say pragmatist as well. He understood that this was a critical problem. It, the image problem at Alabama was a, it was a liability. And if that liability wasn't taken away, then the opportunities to continue to explore space would be problematic. Now, however, what I do know is when he was asked to weigh in on these issues, he did. Jim Webb sends a letter after the passage of the Civil Rights Act. He says, this is now the law of the land. You make sure this legislation is followed. Whether or not he's altruistic about it, it's not necessarily even relevant because he enables. He never tries to, to block. He understands that this, this is necessary as a way forward, and it presents opportunities for other people who are emotionally and morally committed to it to step into that vacuum and move forward. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I don't see any evidence that he was, you know, ideologically a Nazi. I don't—he just wanted to send rockets to the moon. That was like he was just single-mindedly focused on that, and whatever he could do to advance that cause, uh, he would do. And I agree with you completely. I think he was a pragmatist and an opportunist. Uh, opportunist has a kind of negative connotation, um, but he saw opportunity where he could and took advantage of it. And, you know, we would not have gone to the moon had it not been for his tenacity and single-minded focus to, to make sure that happened. I don't think he thought that way. It was just like, how can I manipulate the system that I'm in at this particular moment to get where I want to go? And if he was under Hitler, it would be that. I mean, if he's working for Eisenhower, he's building ICBMs. If he's working for Kennedy, he's going to the moon. You're listening to One Giant Leap, How Integration at NASA Helped Mankind Reach the Moon, a special feature of the Public Radio Hour produced by WLRH Huntsville Public Radio. Let's keep digging into the struggle NASA faced as it tried to integrate minorities into its workforce. It was an identity crisis for Lowell and many people of all racial backgrounds in Alabama and throughout NASA. The color of a person's skin had always mattered to a majority of people, and now suddenly it was supposed to be ignored. It was not so simple, not for white people, not for brown people, and the path was especially difficult and confusing if you were black. That's what Arthur Hewlett discovered. 
Hewlett was one of the first African-American men hired at Marshall Space Flight Center, as he says, to work in some job other than as a janitor. Hewlett was an Army veteran and was smart, intuitive, and could fix most anything. At one point, he made what was deemed to be an impossible repair to Apollo's wind tunnel. And it was in those days when civil rights was just beginning to heat up, and it was, it was pretty tough. The, the people that I had to work f- I had one person that I worked for, the, he was a, a, I would say a unit supervisor maybe, but he was, he was a very fine man, one of the finest people I could have met. And, a, and he had to assign me to work for some more people. And these folks that I, he assigned me to, they were just, you would have thought they were wearing a sheet and hood. <laughs> but it was something you had to overcome. People use ugly ex- expressions and, and when they got a chance, they would say things that you'd, would hurt you deep down on the inside. And at first it bothered me, but I learned something. You got to learn how to take all of this and treat these folk good and work with them. Let them know that, that you're a man. Now stand up for what's right. And, and because I wanted to see other people, black people, come to work in Washington Center, and I did. In fact, at one point I thought they were trying to provoke me to a physical consultation. And the supervisor I had, he would probably would love to have had that as an excuse, he thought. In fact, he told me that if we left with him and John Patterson, John Patterson was a governor at the time. Yo, I know y'all too young to know about him, but he was worse than George Wallace. He was a true segregationist. This supervisor said, left with you and me and John Patterson, you'd be out there in the cotton field. <laughs> and I'm sure if he if he could have kept me from going to work, he would have done that. But uh, we made it through. Why do you think that people were speaking that way to you? You mentioned that you thought they might be trying to provoke you. Why do you think they were, were doing that? Well, I thought they were trying to provoke me into doing something ugly so that they could use it as an alibi to say, don't bring any more black people out here. And I... Uh, in fact, I, I pretty much knew that because they did everything except physically put their hands on me. There were all kinds of threats, and I didn't think anybody was going to really physically. I was a pretty good man, and I didn't think anybody wanted to attack me physically, you know. Because when I went to Redstone, they had just taken down the signs, the colored and white. They had. I wished I could have gotten one of those. It's a souvenir. And this cafeteria was, it was integrated. But you, I wouldn't. I didn't feel comfortable going to them. I'd like to tell you, the first cafeteria I went to, my supervisor invited me to go with him and another fellow. When we got into that cafeteria, there were about thirty people eating breakfast. It's amazing how several seven people would go there and sit down and eat breakfast on the government time. And when I walked in, when they saw me, everybody just got up and got out of there as fast as they could. And there was people who had their food tray on the conveyor. And they walked away and left it there. And there was one man who tried to get his money back because he saw me and they wouldn't give it to him. But in three or four minutes, there were only three people besides the employees in that place. So this is the type of thing that happened. But it, it, it took a little time to overcome that. In fact, about it in 4488 at the time was the headquarters for Dr. Von Braun and General Maderas. They had a beautiful cafeteria, and I hesitated to go there because I didn't. I thought I just wanted to be as peaceful as I could. I have to tell you, one day there were about five women caught me on the elevator, and they demanded you go to the cafeteria with us. They said, you act like you're scared? Let's go. And uh, they took me to the cafeteria, and I wasn't comfortable because I was trying to 
trying to avoid any type of racial problem, sat down. And in fact, I took took a table where only two people could sit. These ladies made me get up and come and sit at the table with them. And uh, I got up and went over. But you would have thought, looking at the men in that place, they were just waiting for an opportunity probably to to explode. And, it, well, they would have had a problem, but uh, nobody did anything. And it took some time to make friends. And I tell you what, everybody that I met, I was as polite as I could be to them, male and females. When they didn't, when they talked ugly to me, I would be nice to them. And it, it took some time, but I won. When I left Marshall Center, I was highly respected by everybody, and I love that. That's the most beautiful part about it. Uh, Buzz, this is Houston, F2, one one sixtieth second for shadow photography on the sequence camera. I'm going to step off the lamb now. The end result was indeed beautiful, as people all over our planet stops to imagine our place in the universe as they had never done before. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. The moon landing didn't solve the issue of equality, but it did provide a lasting reminder that we can accomplish great things when we work together. It also allowed the spotlight to shine on new people and let them prove they had something to offer. Of all the things we gained from the successful trip to the moon, the greatest is probably the change in how we think about people different than ourselves. And if you want proof of that, the person chosen to lead the development of NASA's next lunar landing is a woman, Dr. Lisa Watson Morgan, who previously served as Deputy Director of Marshall Space Flight Center's Engineering Directorate. That's one giant leap from the day when Joyce Neighbors, Jeanette Sism, and others were fighting just to get a foot in the door. Thanks for tuning in the Public Radio Hour, produced by member-supported WLRH Huntsville Public Radio.